Coming up on the Real Talk podcast from Coldwell Banker Real Estate Group, we have Peter Parnig, Master Ninja Selling Instructor. The famous line in Ninja is, everybody loves to buy and nobody likes to be sold. Provide value to people so that they are asking you to help them rather than chasing. And the genius brilliance of Ninja is that you can now be yourself without being that salesperson that you never wanted to be, but you were always told, you know, you have to get out of your comfort zone. And always I was like, be closing. And ABC. We are Coldwell Banker, the real estate group, and we are one. Welcome back to Real Talk with Coldwell Banker Real Estate Group. I am Laura Boyer, Northern Illinois Regional Vice President and your host for this episode. Please welcome today Peter Parnag, Master Instructor with Ninja Selling. Peter is a former co-CEO with Coldwell Banker Legacy and currently resides in Fort Collins, Colorado, home of the Ninja Selling System. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So grateful to have you here. So... We try to dig a little deep. We try to get some of the backstories. And while we spend four days with you, and we've had hundreds of agents go through this installation program within our company, let's get a little backstory. Let's share a little bit for the people that don't know what Ninja Selling is. We'll talk a little bit about that um, and some other fun topics as well. So originally, where do you hail from? I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Uh, I grew up in a real estate family. I'm, a, as I love to say, an SOB, a son of a broker. Mm-hmm. My dad had a small brokerage in Albuquerque uh, since 1955. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is he and his partner managed the regional mall there, Winrock Center, and did development. And my dad did uh, had a small brokerage arm. Really focused on the upper end in Albuquerque. They catered to the new doctors coming in. We had a new medical school, and pretty high-end boutique organization. So growing up in the industry a little bit? Yep. So a little bit by osmosis? Yep. What did you think real estate was about then growing up that way? You know, go back uh, to that time. Uh, I'm an only child. I almost said I was an only child, but I still am. Still. <laughs> yeah. And uh, all I remember is my dad would come home late uh, every day, and then we'd sit down at dinner, and then, of course, somebody would call at dinner. That's when we used to have landlines, you know, whatever those are, right. and no answering machines. And, and I was always like, dang, he's always interrupted. On the other hand, he was actually pretty good about taking off the weekends, and so we, we spent time together. We skied a lot, um, so we grew up, and we built a cabin in Taos, and, and God bless him, he would take time off and do that. So uh, I, uh, it's just what I grew up with, and I think I was used to that. And so, did you always uh, know you were going to end up in? No, I the thought industry? I was not going to end up in the industry. It was not what I had intended at all. I uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor, okay. and I was pre med. Went to college, um, became a heart lung pump operator. Spent about a year and a half in the operating room, and have done I don't know a couple of hundred open heart surgeries uh, operating the pump, and then decided I didn't want to be in an operating room. So, um, so how long was that period of time then? Year and a half. Okay. Yeah, okay. year and a half. I took a year off of college. My dad introduced me to one of his friends who was a thoracic surgeon, uh, cardiovascular surgeon. And I started to work with him in his lab. And it was really quite amazing, that experience. We, uh, uh, he, he's a pretty famous guy, uh, Sterling Edwards. He's now deceased. But he was one of the inventors 
of the uh, Star Edwards valve, which is the valve that was used for decades to do a mitral valve replacement. He was always trying to invent new stuff and we got to help him with that. So it was really exciting and uh, I did that and then decided, no, really in my soul, I'm a musician. That's, okay. that's what makes me tick and that's yeah. what I love the most. Yeah. And so I, I quit doing that and uh, went back to college. Uh, ended up in abandoned college, traveled all over the Northeast for a couple of years, moved back to Albuquerque after that, I was 23, and ended up getting in abandoned Albuquerque with uh, a, a very unknown, very famous studio guitar player named Tim Pierce, who was just voted the fourth best studio guitar player in the history of guitar. Oh. Um, he's played on a thousand records. Uh, he's he was from Albuquerque with me, and we played a thousand nights together. We did our probably five thousand of our ten thousand hours there, and then he moved to LA. Okay. And uh, at that time, I uh, I had gotten married, and so I went into the real estate business when I was twenty five. Okay. Um, sold fifty seven houses my first year, which is uh, it sounds that's a little. A decent. That's a decent start. It was an okay that's first okay. year. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd it, take that. It sounds a lot of new agents out there that would. Yeah, it, it, it sounds a little yeah. more impressive than it is because we had assumable mortgage, so it was okay. easier. Uh, um, okay. But nevertheless, it was right. it was a good first year, good. and uh, went along for four or five years, and then really found myself to be disappointed and almost angry because I felt like I had sold my soul to the devil, oh, that okay. I became a capitalist when I was really an artist. Mm -hmm. And so literally on my 30th birthday, I woke up and I said, if I don't go to LA, I'm gonna be angry. Tim, my yep. buddy, yep. had gotten super famous. He was in Rick Springfield's band. Yep. And I sold my house and on May 17th, I drove to LA in my car with my stuff and was announced proudly uh, in LA, I'm here, and nobody listened. Nobody, uh, yeah. nobody knew. Nobody, nobody knew. knew. Tim knew, and yeah. he, you know, and then I rented a house and started. And, and it's interesting, you know, how, how in retrospect I didn't know, but my goal was to get on an album because mm -hmm. I thought that would be that would be it. Right. And I'd say this kind of fast forward: be really careful about what your goal is, because often you reach your goal and you realize that wasn't really the goal I needed. Right. Um, what I, the goal should have been is I wanted to be satisfied and in the music industry playing consistently with people that I love and having a, a, an abundant life. And that goes back into what we talk a lot about, your why. Absolutely. Like, why are you doing this? I was in, in two bands at the time, one with a guy named Bruce Watson, who just for fun, uh, played with Elton John, played with oh. Rod Stewart, and did all the guitars on Sarah Bareilles' first record, and today is the uh, guitar player in Foreigner. And so he and I are very close friends. And so I was trying to get famous with him, and the album that we made was produced by uh, Andy Johns from Led Zeppelin. And it was a it was a hair band from the 80s uh, uh, called Stone Fury. I had hair at the time. You can well, here's the fun story. <laughs> so I wrote three of the albums that got assigned. I played on the demo, and then right before we went out, I got fired. We we were going to open for the Scorpions and did Stone Fury. So I played on the record. So if you hear hear the record, I, I played on it, wrote the songs, but I didn't tour with them. Okay. We sold about seventy thousand records, which. Uh, my favorite line is, is a zero short of fame. Yeah. Uh, 700,000 records makes you famous. 70,000 makes you hungry and hopeful and broke. Right, um, right. So anyway, so at that point, then I went to the real estate business. I went yeah. back in L.A. and took a job out of the 
Los Angeles Times and started managing a small company. Uh, And it was good because it was for somebody other than my dad. And so I learned a lot of processes and systems. I, I, I don't know if she's still alive. I think she was Judy McGregor in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, in this high-end area. And I started managing her company, and we grew it from 18 to 60 agents. And then my dad called and said, I'm going to sell my company or take it over. What do you want to do? And so in 1987, I moved back with my son and wife and took over his 18-agent company. So that's sort of the, the, the gummy middle uh, until I was about 28, something okay. like that. Well, no, 34 at that time. Yeah. So, and, and, and it sounds like you've taken us, which we're not, almost to present day. So there's still a gap of time here where... Took you- over my dad's company, uh, grew it to 90 agents quickly, mm-hmm. uh, boutique, we were Christie's affiliate, yeah. Yeah. and uh, in Albuquerque. There were five companies at the time that were all sharing about a 10% market share. And it was a cage fight. It was just ugly. And we were scrapping for a half percent market share. And there was a big independent. And there was Better Homes and Gardens. And there was my high-end boutique company. And then there was a a, a, a brand new branded 100% company. And it was just ugly every day. And then the 100% guy and I kind of became friends. And um, over a two-year period, we ended up doing a merger and branded Coldwell Banker at the time. And that was 1998. So each one of us had about 90 agents. So we went to 180 agents. And then in two years, we acquired our two other main competitors. One was Prudential and one was Better Homes and Gardens. We unbranded Better Homes and Gardens and Prudential and took all the agents. And and, uh, the fun part is we went from 90 agents to 500 agents in two and a half half years. We were on the cover of uh, Realtor Magazine. 2002 is the fastest growing company in the United States, which sounded great, but it was a big, fat mess culturally. Um, And sort of the important conversation about this is culture really is everything. Uh, you can put a bunch of agents together, but if you don't have alignment around ideology, uh, around a, a productivity system, uh, it all sounds good, but it's just everybody's running in 19 different directions trying to figure out where they fit. Right. And uh, so in 2004, we took our entire management team to the Stephen Covey Institute awesome. in, uh, in Sundance, Utah, mm-hmm. and tried to align ourselves around the Covey system, which was pretty powerful. Yeah. We made yeah. some progress. Everything was going great. We uh, we got to 700 agents. You know, we were training. Uh, f- we had seven training classes a year, 40. We were training 200 agents a year, bringing them on board. Yep. We were on our march to 1,000 at the time. And then 2008 happened. Um, and Albuquerque was one of the unsung, beaten beasts. Uh, you know, the famous ones were, of course, Detroit, Las Vegas, mm-hmm. Florida, California, the ones that really got creamed in the... Right in the recession, uh, we, here's some numbers from Albuquerque. In our big year in Albuquerque, we there were 13,282 closings-ish, uh, so about 27,000 sides. We had 9,600 sides, uh, our company did that year. And then two years later, the market went to 6,800 sides with a 20% decrease in, in sales price. So our GCI in two years was cut more than in half, yeah. and it was wild. Uh, as we said, 
survival was the new success. And we had to carve and cut and learn what it really took to run a company under huge duress. We did not go bankrupt, which was great. Doors stayed open. Doors stayed open, which is fantastic. That's what we said. You know, survival is the new success. Mm -hmm. And then in 2010, when the market sort of normalized simultaneously, we were in 2009, actually, we were introduced to the Ninja system. And that was my question. How How did this all come to Ninja? As you describe your introduction to Ninja, maybe give a couple of sentences and a little bit about what the Ninja selling system is. So... As an owner for 20 years, what we were really always struggling to find was the uh, was the appropriate productivity system. And if you go back all the way to the beginning, for those of you who are listening, who remember there was Tommy Hopkins was the first one, and then there was Floyd Wickman, you know, Sweat Hogs. That's what I yeah, exactly. And then a guy named Joe Stumpf came along, um, and uh, David Knox. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other trainers. And we tried them all. We were all trying them, and there were bits and pieces of all of them that were like, this will work. And then Mike Ferry came along, and uh, he was very strong and powerful and scared some of us because it was so in your face. Um, And he would be proud if he heard me say that. And then his son, Tom, came along, and... uh, and all of them, like I said, you know, Brian Buffini came along. Yeah, love Brian with, uh, you know, by referral only. And what we discovered is all of them had pieces, but there was never an entire suite from how do I do listings, how do I do sales, how do I uh, have a mindset that works, how do I create business without some of old school prospecting and chasing. And so all of them were like, yeah, I guess, but nothing felt good for the soul would be a way to put it. What Ninja did, and this is Larry Kendall's true genius that took him 20 years to put together, 25, is he figured out the famous line in Ninja is, everybody loves to buy and nobody likes to be sold. Mm -hmm. And so every sales training system focusing was on closing techniques, on overcoming objections, on convincing people to list at the right price. And who likes to be closed? Who likes to be convinced? Right. Who likes to be overcome? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Larry figured out a holistic way to provide value to people so that they are asking you to help them rather than chasing. And the genius brilliance of Ninja is that you can now be yourself without being that salesperson that you never wanted to be, but you were always told, you know, you have to get out of your comfort zone. And I was like, be closing. And yeah. ABC. Yep. And, and I started, it's 15 years now, and when I got started, nothing felt comfortable. But I like it grew up in the business, learned a lot by you know the MLS book in my lap with my mom. <laughs> in, MLS book. Through, yeah, flipping yeah. through the pages and walking through the smoke-filled office with the phones and people sitting around in their blazers and making calls and and it's, I never thought I'd end up there. And then when I did, I still wasn't comfortable. But it for me, it was a means to you know the side income, the side hustle. Let's sell a few houses a year. It might pay for a vacation. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went through my first installation that I walked away. And I know several other people that were with me in that first installation with us several years ago now was, wow, it's like I got permission to be me and do this my way. Spot on. Because it appeals to every personality type and, and what's your comfort zone, whatever that is. And that's, that's why people keep coming back too. So I think that that's a big 
big tribute to the genius, like you said, with Larry Kendall in, in putting this together. Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, I remember for so long, the first thing that everybody would say is, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are some reasons for that, but people feel best around people when they are being their most sincere and authentic. Mm-hmm. And most of the sales techniques that we were told we had to do were inauthentic, somewhat manipulative. Uh, and I think all of us were like, well, I guess this is what we have to do to be in sales. But almost all of us had this inner voice going, I don't like doing this. And there was always this push-pull that was like, I, I guess we have to, but I hate this. Right. And when I saw Ninja, it was like, ah, I'm home. I can do this. I can be the person I want to be. I can be comfortable in my own skin and help people buy and sell houses without those old school techniques. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you said um, that you had been through eight installations yourself before becoming an instructor. Oh, yeah. Uh, before I even thought about being an instructor. So what So what flipped the switch? When? So you had, you kept going. So uh, we... And then it was like, wait a minute. So here's what happened. Yeah. We started putting our, our agents at Call the Banker Legacy through the installation one at a time. And I would go every time with them. And slowly but surely, I started to learn it. And then one day, it became appropriate that my two partners, Mike and Joe, who I hope you're listening, I love you dearly, mm-hmm. uh, it was the time to, to separate. And so I sold my interest to them uh, in Albuquerque. And then I called Larry and I said, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I might retire, but do you have any need for me at Ninja? And he said, well, come up and let's talk. And uh, I had a great conversation with him. And, and, and really at the beginning, I said, my mission is to bring this to Coldo Banker because yeah. I believe in this and we were sort of the, at the forefront of the time right. and I said I right. know I know all the guys in the mob and the log and right. and, right. and let, let me introduce it to them and he said great on your market set go uh, I was back in sales and you know because we're sure. we're 1099 instructors sure. and our job is to find people to help improve their companies Absolutely. and that's really and now is over you've done over 130 installations yeah something now? like that 125 you know who's counting I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lose, lose count. I would. Yeah, yeah. Like most realtors, we don't track our numbers very well. So, yeah. but at least yeah, that's you're good at that. So that's excellent. Yeah. Um. So, obviously, with 130 installations under your belt, and you said you you do about 30, oh, 35 a year. Yeah, so. somewhere in there, 25, yeah. 35, so depending 30 on. So 30 is a pop. Yeah. You're on the road quite a bit. Yes, ma'am. So, if you're traveling this much, what would you say are some of the comforts of home? that you would like to try to bring on the road with you? Or do you have your own habits and comforts because you're on the road so much that when you're home, you bring it with you home? So routine yeah. is nice. You know, we, we talk a great deal at Ninja about having a routine, have structure, because structure provides freedom, actually. It's, it's right. counterintuitive. Right. And uh, so one of the, the, the hardest things about being on the road are exercise and diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, I figured out a way. I, I joined Anytime Fitness. They're everywhere. And you have your little key, and so I can go to the gym. Uh, and that's important. Eating healthy is, it, it takes, that, that's important. Um, and the, the truth of this is once we're done at night, there's always more. We do manager sessions, right. then there's emails to take care of, and I manage the whole uh, email system for the whole company. Uh, it's it's a full-time job. You know, if you start at 7 in the morning, uh, which we do, we have to be there 7, 7.15, ready to roll. And this is the only job I've ever had in my life where 
I can't quick and run go to the dry cleaners at 2.30 in the afternoon. Right. You know, it's, flexibility there. There's right. no <laughs> flexibility. Uh, it is 7 till 5.30 every day. Yeah. And then uh, exercise and eat. And, and the other thing you've heard us say, it, we're corporate athletes. The one thing that is most important is taking care of our body. Mm-hmm. Because teaching when sick is the worst. If you have a cold or something and you're at the office, you can kind of duck in and take some NyQuil and just lay low. Right. Right. Reschedule appointments. Yeah, there is, yeah, there is no laying low. So, but, so staying healthy on the road, this isn't the question you asked, but this is the answer I'm yeah. giving, um, is, is everything. But that's your habits. I mean, it's, it's a comfort. It's, it's sleep. It gives you it's sleep. It's absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I travel with a little guitar. I that bought. was my next question. So you're being the musician you are, yeah. and you the instruments you play. Now yeah. you, you play three instruments. Yep. Uh-huh. Which ones? Bass is my professional instrument. I've okay. um, played that all my life, and I play guitar and piano. Okay. Yeah. So hard to bring a piano on the road. But your guitar yeah. is, your, is your instrument of choice to travel with. Yeah, and they make this amazing guitar called a Traveler Guitar. It's designed right. for guys like me, and it, the electronics are terrific, and you plug in the headphones, and it, the neck is beautiful, and it sounds great, and it's it's just, it's for those of you, you got to check out Traveler Guitars. It's a, it's a brand. It's outstanding. Excellent. Yeah. That's great. So now that you've been through so many installations, and you kind of got a down pat, you know, but you make it new every time. It seems I've been through three installations and there's things that I did, you know, you pick up every time I go and agents keep coming back for more. Mm-hmm. I always attribute it to the fact that your, your mindset when you first go, mm-hmm. what you're open to receiving mm-hmm. in, in wisdom that mm-hmm. you learn, mm-hmm. how you might apply that or try to create that, those habits and lifestyle changes in your business. Right. And then when you come back again, you're in a different place in your mindset, in your business, and you might be open to receiving something differently. What, what's your take on that? So Tammy Spaulding, who's mm-hmm. the number one producer at the home of Ninja, mm-hmm. does about a million in GCI every year. She has it and has had it in her business plan for maybe 15 years to go every year, every other year. So she's been to eight or nine installations, knocking out a million bucks, yeah. so 30, 40 million production. And he, she says it perfectly. It's the old adage we've heard, when the student is ready, the master appears, the teacher appears. What she means by that is that you can go to a ninja installation at one moment, and then two years later, even though the message might be delivered identically by the instructor, you weren't ready to hear it the first time. Right. You weren't available to it. It was not in your, in your consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden, now you're needed to hear that, and you hear it, and, and we hear students all the time saying, is this new? And it's like, well, not really. But you couldn't hear it. It wasn't available to you. Even today, the material is so thick. It's so rich. Literally, every time I teach it, I make a new connection. And I put, tie this to this. I, okay, so this mindset shows up right here today in the seller process. And that ties to mastery. And if I pay attention to mastery, I'll understand how that's triggering my reticular activating system. Mm-hmm. And this wild web of connection and complexity reveals itself literally every time I teach. And I go, oh, that's awesome. How did I miss that for 100 plus times? Which A, is the genius of the material. B, what you focus on expands and it keeps expanding and it keeps it fun and interesting. So it's like a super win. Describe for me what you felt like going into your first installation. (laughs) (laughs) Terrified? Yeah. 
incompetent, hopeful. The genius is the material is good enough. And so as instructors, you know, Larry's pretty cute. He, he and I both been in bands. And he said, well, I'm looking for, you think of yourself as a cover band. I want you to play the material great um, because the material is good enough. And here's a funny side story. So Foreigner right now, yeah. I told you my great friend is the guitar player in it. Mm-hmm. There's not one original member of Foreigner in Foreigner anymore. They're effectively a cover band, but they play the songs perfectly. And the musicianship is killer. And you go see them, and it isn't like everybody goes, well, where's Mick Jones or whoever, who I think it was. Uh, everybody's like, this sounds like Foreigner, and the singer sounds great. In many ways, the instructors are the same way. Our job is to take this material and play it perfectly. Like everything, even my friend Bruce said, you know, we played 178 nights last year. I was talking to him, and he's the guitar player. He said, and we're getting really tight. There is nothing, as we say, like repetition, right. which really goes to the same as somebody going through a ninja. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, well, I've been through twice. And I go, well, it's like you've played the song twice. Uh, when you've played it 100 times, you're going to be pretty good at it. Uh, we sell ourselves short on the value of repetition um, because my view is most realtors are looking for the next shiny object. And they go, well, I, I've been a ninja. Now what? The magic potion. Yeah, where's yeah, the right. silver bullet, the magic right. potion, the something? Right. And the magic is the system is brilliant, and the real magic is in the repetition until it is so second nature that it flows beautifully. It's it's much like an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're learning lines, um, I don't think that Tom Hanks gets the luxury of rewriting the script. He takes the script and is the brilliant actor that he is makes it his so that you're going that's so good and then you go he's so good and and larry has written a really beautiful script and our job is to learn it and deliver it with as much beauty as we can so what would today's peter tell the peter on the first day of his first installation what would be your best advice there's no substitute for repetitions um mastery has this really beautiful piece in the paragraph four, mm-hmm. and, it see, and it says, you see, we're all ordinary, but a master, rather than condemning himself for his ordinariness, uses it for a foundation to build the extraordinary. The hardest part for me in my life has always been being hyper self-critical, mm-hmm. and I can over-condemn myself, beat myself up. It also turns out that it's in my horoscope, in my oh. chart. Okay. that I have Chiron in some house, I've forgotten what it is, and Chiron is a little prankster and is always making, is I have a predisposition for self-criticism. And my astrologer said, just know that a lot of times when you feel bad about yourself, it's not real. And you, if, see if you can shrug it off because it's in your chart, for those of you who believe in, 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 in horoscopy. So the learning piece for me around this was to forgive myself and recognize that I'm on a path to mastery and every time I do it, I do it better. And I can still think back to some installations that I go, I just, I wasn't very good that time. And it's natural. Sure. Um, and, and instead of recriminating and beating yourself up, correct, don't protect. Don't protect. Yep. You know, and the wisdom of that paragraph is just so brilliant and it's been one of my guiding lights as I have done this for five years. That progress, not perfection, is what rings in my mind a lot. And, totally. I, and I always, I used to think that being a perfectionist was 
a good thing, or I use that very geniusly in my job interviews as when they ask you for what are your three weaknesses. That was my really good way of saying, well, I'm a perfectionist, which I thought was psychologically like really good because now they're gonna think, well, that means that's a good thing, and but yet it would make me sometimes be a little delayed on my projects or completions because I was so diligent in taking such care um, but I quickly learned that that's not the best way to identify a weakness in myself is to see how I could flip it and mask it as a strength. So Somebody um, yeah. said this to me the other day about a month ago, and I thought it was so great. She says, perfectionism is a form of self-abuse. Absolutely. I believe that. I was like, yeah. yeah. So, I thought that was really good. So I've heard you reference your career path, your jobs, but you something came up that I hadn't heard yet before. And team roping was mm-hmm. the phrase. Mm-hmm. And I immediately am picturing the arena with the bulls and the barrels. And I, this is where my head with the calves. And re- tell me more about this. A uh, little sideline. Yeah. Uh, I got involved in cowboy sports about 25 years ago. And uh, we lived in New Mexico and kind of enjoyed that. And I didn't know really anything about it. I had ridden as a kid and was really afraid of horses and and uh, we lived on some acreage and and then somebody says, do you know anything about team roping? And I was like, mm, I have no idea. And then I went and watched it and it looked really fun. And uh, turns out that the national organization that promotes it is in Albuquerque and I knew the guy who started the whole thing. So, oh, <laughs> so the, the story is, uh, more information than necessary, but this is a podcast, it's so talk. it's real talk. It's real say, talk. Say it all. Say it all. <laughs> so, if you have ever been to a rodeo, there are seven events in a rodeo. Three are rough stock events, so it's a bareback, saddle bronc, and bull riding. You win those by getting a higher score, mm-hmm. so they're qualitative. Mm-hmm. And then there are four events that are timed events, which would be calf roping, steer wrestling. Um, uh, Uh, team roping and barrel racing and so team roping is that event that was created on a ranch when you were trying to find uh, baby cows to brand and so there are two people involved in it there's one on the left side who's a header who ropes the steer or the cow or the calf or whatever around the horns Mm -hmm. and then mechanically turns a corner and then a guy comes behind with a rope and ropes the back feet and then you dally on your saddle horn and now you have full control of the animal and you could brand him and then let him go that was the cowboy that was the ranch application we call it cowboy golf Um, the horses are doing most of the work we're riding but it's just a kick in the pants. And so we had an arena at home, oh lights, water truck, tractors, steers. Steers are castrated mm-hmm. cows. Um, and we roped all the time. So I have spent a lot of time on a horse with a rope. It was fun. That's, that's, I love it's, getting some new yeah, it's, stories. It, it, it was a blast. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. How, long, how long did you do that for? Gosh, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what makes you, you, and you unique, but so loved as an instructor within our own company, you have a really good gift for keeping groups engaged. Anybody listening that's not a realtor may not 
realize what it takes to keep the attention of one realtor, let alone a hundred in a room. We're all so ADD. Right. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah. to, have, to have silence in a room of a hundred people that are independent contractors that get to you know make their own day and, and don't need to answer to anybody, but boy, they're really good at answering to you and, and, and following the rules that you set forth and your expectations. But I know that there's some studying that goes in behind this. And I know that you know your audience you know their personalities. How quickly do you identify when you're in a room in front of people or one-on-one, how quickly can you identify their personality type and how you need to communicate with them? Um, Every group has a personality which emerges in the first half hour, hour. Mm -hmm. Some are very quiet, some are very demonstrative. It's somewhat geographically uh, created. Um, And the most important thing that, that I've had to learn, and this really goes to my personal path, this is a pretty vulnerable remark, mm-hmm. is when I try too hard, I get a bad response. And what I've had to learn is to rely on the material, because the material is so good, and then not try to push too hard to get a response. Because generally, you know, I can connect with an audience around humor, but a lot of times they don't laugh. And then I get nervous. I used to get nervous, and I was like, oh my gosh. And then you'd say one of those unnecessary kind of trying to engage the audience, which really off puts them more than connects with them. Like, come on, you guys, laugh. And they're like, we'll laugh when we're ready. And one of the things I had to learn was to just trust that if I deliver the information beautifully, pristine, in other words, play the solo, mm-hmm. play it right. Not every audience is going to jump up and go, I'll play all night. But the material is good enough that they're engaged. And then I had to learn that sometimes highly engaged people are non-demonstrative because they're thinking a lot. And so the most important thing is to pay attention to facial expressions. And we have a pretty good bag of, I don't want to say tricks, but techniques to gauge and respond to the energy in the room. Because you can tell when the energy's up, when it's down, and we have a number of tools to respond to changing energy in the room. And we know how to do it as instructors, and and that's part of what it takes to be a good instructor. And so the the best thing is just to be completely real. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think the material allows that, too, because it is comfortable, because it it does appeal to most all personalities anyway. Yeah. So if it's appealing to them and you're teaching it, it's got to work for you, no matter what's thrown your way. And that's also part of being consistent, because the material is so self-supporting. If the instructor is too, too needy of response and approval... It's that's not the ninja way. And at the beginning, I probably was that would if, if I were to tell the Peter of four and a half years ago, let the let the material do the heavy lifting. Don't try too like hard. Golf, we say let the club do the work. Let the club do the work. The Same. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't swing too hard because yep. you'll just spray it. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Excellent. So what is your ideal audience then? Demonstrative, engaging, quiet, you know, want to listen longer. I mean, what do, what do you feel the most energy with? Well, there's, there's two questions there. Okay. Let's start with the ideal audience. Mm-hmm. The ideal audience is the interested, receptive audience. Okay. How demonstrative they, they are is just, it's just a, a level of more fun. So I, I have a number of companies that I work with that 
the audience is never demonstrative. It's part of the culture of the company, and it's probably part of the culture of the state, because certain states are more demonstrative than others. And at the end, they love it and they're happy. And I just have to understand that I won't get much energetic response. So what are we? When you're at our company, what would you describe like, our audience? You're my culture? favorite children. Yeah, I love you more than any of them all. Well and the check is in the mail, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this group, especially this time. No, I, I, I'm just going back through. It's always been pretty great. I, I haven't pulled a quiet audience with your group at all, with your company. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm doing a quick review. Um, probably 90% of the audiences are generally excited. It, it's, it's somewhat of a function of the, of the mood and the culture of the company and how many people in the audiences were, were basically forced to go against their will. Blackmail. Blackmail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it's easier from an energetic point of view when there's a reaction. Right. You know, uh, if you're a stand-up comedian and nobody's laughing, even though the jokes are good, it's just not as satisfying. So when, uh, I mean, this group has been hilarious. We're just laughing all the time. Yes. Uh, it's easier, and then I don't try as hard, and then, then I'm funnier. And so one of the things that my wife and I talk about, let the humor happen organically rather than trying to force the issue or tell jokes or stuff. And when the, when the humor is organic, it's just, I mean, you know how many things have happened in this installation that right, are just right. gut-wrenching funny. <laughs> yeah, I got, you said one earlier, you used an acronym earlier, and, I, and um, I'll come back to that offline because it was actually pretty funny. And I, I thought, I don't even know if you realize what he said. So. Oh, there were two or three things that were just like, I can't believe that just happened. Yeah. Tell us what's next. What's the next thing that people that have been through the installation, obviously with with new students every day, they're coming in excited and energized and they're going to be enrolling into their skills groups with their peers and their managers. Um, what else they looked forward to? What, what else is coming with Ninja? So two years ago, I became a partner in Ninja and one of my number one goals was to create a sustainable aftercare program. Because when I got here, where we were, people would go through the installation and it was like, okay, see ya, love you, do your skills groups. And we kind of, in my book, left everybody high and dry. So almost exactly a year ago, we started a consistent aftercare program, which this installation will get. So starting on Monday, there will be a lifelong series of free emails with videos that are designed to help an agent stay on the path. Because here's what we know. We get distracted, but these are two-minute videos that we've spent the whole year putting together, and they're, they're consistent. Of course, we start with the Ninja 9, and they're wonderful. Yep. Next thing, we're developing what's known as Ninja 2, okay. which is this, uh, a two-day course for, uh, for people who've been through Ninja 1. And it's, it's a really a, it's an expansion and an in-depth tackling of the Ninja 9 mindset and the buyer and seller process is the design. And we're putting the finishing touches on that. Hopefully we'll have that ready uh, maybe uh, late winter, early spring. And then the third thing we're doing that I'm wickedly excited about is we're creating a membership site uh, called uh, Ninja Inside. Awesome. And here's what we've, we've been spending the last year doing is you know, Larry does the webinars every month, and you can buy those for $19.95. Right. Uh, but what we said is, what if, for the same price, we could do the webinar, we could provide an hour-long filmed interview with the top ninja and really get into the secret sauce of them. We have a podcast. 
we have what we call uh, Larry's Book Club, where he is walking us through just little pieces of the book, where it came from, what he thinks about it. And then the last thing we're adding is something called Conversations with Larry, which is really uh, he and I and a couple of other people kind of digging deep into his genius and capturing it on tape. And we're ready to launch that in the next month or two. So for 20 bucks a month, you get five things for the price of one. And I've been in charge of these interviews. And some of the things that the ninjas around the country are saying are just so inspiring. And I can't wait for other ninjas to hear them because it's like, oh, my gosh, there, there, there. And it's the, the title is, How Can I Be an Individual and Still Be a Ninja and Express My Individuality Without Breaking the Recipe? And oh my gosh! So those are those are all the things that are on on Excellent. ready to come. So well, friends, you heard it here first. You did, not. yes. Did first, Excellent. yes, absolutely. Hey. You heard it here first. You heard it, for, you heard it here yeah. first on the Real Talk podcast. Yeah, absolutely. With Cole Banker, the Real Estate Guru. Yep. Um, one more question: We like to ask everybody we interview. Yep. What is the favorite part of your home, and why? Oh, uh, so we have four favorite parts of my home. Okay. So we have the Ninja Filming Studio is in my house, and so we do all our filming there that we built, number one. Then I have my recording area, which is really great. I have set up. Then uh, we have I have a really great gym at home that's very nicely set up, a rower and a and a you know a. Um, the old Schwinn Airdyne and a good setup, a good set of weights and and bar. Uh, Then we have a a theater room that we really like that that doubles. Um, uh, Our our living room, family room, kitchen. This is fun. I just put in a wolf stove because this is, again, more than you need to know. I have this theory of life, and I call it the five-year theory. And about 30 years ago, I said, hmm, one can acquire a body of knowledge in five years. For example, you can go to medical school, five years. You can learn to play an instrument in five years. You can learn to speak a language in five years. You can learn to team rope in five years. You can learn to be a woodworker, uh, et cetera. So I've been doing these five-year chunks for the last 25 years. And the one I'm working on now is I want to learn to cook. So I'm in the middle of my cooking five-year piece, and I hated our stove. We did this huge kitchen remodel, and finally I said, dang it, I'm getting a wolf stove. So I found this warehouse in Wisconsin that had one. They shipped it to me, and I installed it, and I am in love with my wolf stove. It's just amazing. And then we have this killer backyard with this with this water feature that's great. So. You like your whole home. I love my house. That's awesome. I like lots of places. Yeah. That's great. Well, That's thanks great. for sharing that. I, I really appreciate your your willingness to give so much of your time to us, not just in the installations, but over lunch periods and afterwards and, and recording things like this for us. You're just um, very giving. We're very grateful. And we're excited to have many more installations with you to come ahead um, and keep letting our cross our paths cross mm-hmm. um, and learning the next five-year plan after you're done cooking. So, uh, we'll, so we'll you know what you just said that's really beautiful, yeah. and this would be a perfect bow. One of the best ways to get more things is to give more things. Zig Ziglar always said it. You know, the best way to get happiness in your life is help other people uh, find happiness for themselves. And that was a version of it. So for me, the gift that 
keeps on giving is the gift of giving. And so thank you so much for, for being a part of this journey with all of us. Uh, this is no work for me. This is all pleasure. And thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. We see it as genuine. I definitely see that as genuine and very authentic. So we appreciate your time and all the energy you put to this. So. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Laura, you killed it. Thank you so much. See you. Bye. Bye.